0: I mean, I'm all all about visual aids. Visual aids can make you—visual aids can make you five times more effective as a speaker. And I desperately need all the help I can get. Um, It makes presentations more interesting. People retain more. Helps with your credibility. Helps with speech apprehension. But the number one advantage of visual aids is clarity. And we're going to talk about something that uh, I didn't invent this concept and at some levels I still don't like it in my own sin nature, but we're going to see the Lord use an unforgettable visual aid, namely a fish with a coin in its mouth to teach truth that's hard to swallow. Namely, the core of Christlikeness isn't glibness, isn't personal charisma, isn't a Ph.D. in biblical studies. The core of Christlikeness is a quiet and consistent humility-slash- Servanthood lifestyle. That's what it is. And I thought I was going to get rich and famous 38 years ago. And uh, no, I didn't really. And one of my old jokes, Ben, is when I first went into ministry 38 years ago, I had no desire to become rich or famous. And you know what? It's working out great. So, uh, But watch this. This is not you being pushed around because you don't have any convictions. A quiet, consistent, humility lifestyle of servanthood, which is firm... In doctrinal and moral convictions, but flexible with how we exercise our personal rights. You might say firm in propositions, flexible with persons. And you do that in a marriage if it's going to survive. You do that with your kids. Uh, you, You do that in a lot of areas. That's the whole essence of the Christian life. So we're going to look at that today in our series Beyond A through Z, we're gonna kind of look at passages we didn't cover in the big overall survey of the life of Christ. But let's pray that we'll be teachable to the Word today and also for those who protect and serve us, active military peace officers and firefighters. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, I did pray the Holy Spirit who inspired this text and who has preserved it uh, would uh, illuminate to our hearts and minds so this would not just be ancient information but you might transform it and move it from our heads to our hearts so this becomes propositional truth it becomes the whole basis for our priorities and our choices and our commitments and I pray on this very hard to swallow truth that's all about humility and servanthood help us to embrace this um, as a lifestyle as The only appropriate response to have receiving, having received salvation from the servant lamb messiah who's ultimately our sovereign Lord. I thank you for the privilege it is for us to be here together. I want to pray for those who protect and serve our uh, rights under the U.S. Constitution to meet here without fear of official government persecution or arrest. We pray for the suffering church. In many places in the world, this is not a privilege they get to enjoy. And I pray for those. I pray for those folks in the military, those who are peace officers and uh, firefighters especially, that are believers. Please protect them, both their testimony and their personal uh, lives and what they're doing and serving and putting themselves in harm's way. And we pray for their extended families because in many ways they serve just as much and give just as much. But again, we thank you for the privilege we've got to spend some concerted time feeding on your word. We've worshipped, we've fellowshiped, we've prayed, and now we get to feed on your word. And I pray that you would be pro- uh, glorified through the process of us doing that together and in the product of all of that in our individual lives. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Talking about visual aids and abstract thought warmer uppers, I've got one of my oldies but goldies. This is my favorite. It's the only reason I'm doing it but I like it. Top seven things that crossed Goliath's mind just before David loaded his slingshot. He was thinking about a lot of things, Jan, but I'm not going to waste your time with that. I'm going to look at the top seven, okay? Number seven, Donald Trump would have a better chance against Hillary Clinton than this punk has against me. (laughs) That's what he was thinking. The Philistine powerhouse, that'd be Goliath, versus the Semitic shrimp. That would be David... My agent will never be able to sell this thing to HBO. Nobody would believe it. It's funny, but for a shepherd, that kid doesn't sweat much. He's not that worried about it. Number four. We're going to do all seven of them, whether you want to or not. After I put this pip squeak, when's the last time you heard that expression? In his place. I'm going to Disney World. Number three, I wonder why he is running toward me and not away from me. He ran to the fray, man. He was ready to go. It's sad, but this whole thing will take about three seconds, and then nobody will even remember it ever happened. Boy, was he wrong. And then talking about visual aids, we have an artist representation. This is not a photograph of the scene. Hey, kid, put that rock down before someone gets hurt. Yeah, let's look at an interesting passage where we're going to see an unforgettable visual aid, a fish with a coin in his mouth to teach truth that's hard to swallow. We'll see a significant setting, the significant setting, a controversial question with a negative agenda, trying to make Jesus look bad, and then our Lord's firm but flexible response. Look at verses 22 and 23. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. And while they were gathered together in Galilee, Jesus and the disciples, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, bad men, and they will kill him. And he'll be raised up on the third day. And they were deeply grieved, I guess so. This is in the fall of 32 A.D., and the crucifixion will happen on April 3rd, 33 A.D. So we're just a few months away. But... It's important, this is our life of Christ A through Z system that hit the major events. We're just after Q and R. Q is in the aftermath of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem saying Jesus does miracles, but he does them in satanic power. He's a satanically possessed false prophet. That's the official party line, Matthew 12. In Matthew 16, and Ron read it for Call to Worship, Jesus takes the guys out of Jewish territory to a Gentile resort area north of the Sea of Galilee called Caesarea Philippi. Uh, Dustin's been there. And he says, what's the Gallup poll saying about me now? Who do men say that I am after the leaders say I'm a satanically possessed false prophet? And they're actually quite happy, Atlanta, because they're saying, nobody's saying bad stuff about you. They're saying you might be a prophet. But nobody in the Gallup poll is saying he's the Christ. Nobody. I think they've been influenced by the leader's verdict on Jesus. And then he says, question one, who do men say that I am? What's the Gallup poll saying? Question number two, who do you, and that's all y'all in the Greek, It means you disciples, who do you say now? What are you going to say about me now? You've seen me for a year and a half, you've heard what the leaders say, I'm satanically possessed false prophet. That's a big question, Stephanie. Everybody's got to answer that sooner or later. Who do you say I am? And what does Peter say, speaking for 11 twelfths of them? You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Lamb of God. We've got no doubt about that. You're the Son of God. That's big. Okay, so they confess their faith in the aftermath of the Jewish leaders repudiating Jesus and saying he's a satanically possessed false prophet. That's Q, quizzical questions. And then our reality revealed in the immediate aftermath of Peter hitting that home run, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to the top of Mount Hermon, which just happens to be right just due north of Caesarea Philippi, 9,200 foot high limestone mountain, and guess what? Moses and Elijah show up, and Jesus unveils his glory temporarily, and they see validation of everything they said about Jesus. So in the immediate aftermath of that, and that was in Matthew 17, early in the chapter, now we're in Matthew seventeen twenty-two, and he's got them all together, and he says, the bad guys are going to kill me, but I'll be resurrected. And they're freaking out. They don't like it. Now, I want you to notice, from this point on in the life of Christ, he emphasizes two things. His deity and his death. He emphasizes, I am the Son of God. I'm not just the Son of Man, I'm the Son of God. And I'm going to die, but I'm going to be resurrected. Okay, He doesn't talk about that plainly until after the leaders reject him. Earlier in the ministry, he's trying to get the word out as wide as possible. After they reject him, He's trying to get the disciples in shape to carry on after he's resurrected and ascends back to heaven. So talking about the Son of Man, that's a title Jesus uses for himself more than any other title. And it goes back to Daniel 7. Let's look at that briefly. And and this is not a diminished title. This is a title for the Messiah that emphasizes that in connection with God the Father, he's one day going to rule the whole, whole world undeniably supernaturally. It's a very exalted title for the Messiah that emphasizes his humanity without denying his deity. Daniel 7, 13 and 14, Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. This is a title for the Messiah, is in heaven, just before the what we call the second advent, and he came up to God the Father. He's referred to there as the ancient of days, was presented to him and to him, that is to the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, a kingdom that all the peoples and nations would serve in. Uh, his dominion will be an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That's a, 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 a Old Testament prophecy about heaven just before the second advent. Using that title for Jesus, Son of Man, in a very exalted sense for the Messiah, who looks like a human being, But he's full deity, co-equal, and he's going to be the leader of the world undeniably in the end times. But let's now look at Psalm 2. That's the Old Testament history and origin of the title Son of Man for Jesus as the Messiah. Where do we get the title Son of God for the Messiah? Now remember, he's emphasizing his death and his deity in this second phase of his ministry. Well, that title... For Jesus, Son of God, goes back to Psalm 2, which was written in about 1000 B.C. And I want to focus on the last couple of verses there. But if you turn to Psalm 2, you'll notice at the very beginning you have this rhetorical question. Why are the nations so messed up? Why are they always in an uproar? Why are the peoples devising vain things? Obviously, our body politic is totally irrational. But if you look at it, it's kind of always been kind of interesting all the time. It's just gotten worse. The kings of the earth take their stand, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, God the Father, and against his Christ, his anointed to be better translated Christ, saying, let's tear their fetters apart. Let's just deny all Judeo-Christian morality because that just hangs people up, and let's just see what happens, and you see what happens. But the bottom line on this, drop down to chapter uh, Psalm 2, verse 10 through 12, and I've got that on the, the slide for you. After talking about the fact God has a plan, he's permitting evil temporarily, ultimately his son, his, his Messiah, he calls him his son in verse 7, uh, will stop the progression of human history and going down the dumper uh, undeniably supernaturally. So in the interim, those of you that want to be doing and thinking the right thing, as you see world culture spinning out of control, now therefore, in light of the big picture, which involves the Son of God, Ending human history on God's terms. O kings, show discernment. Take warning. O judges of the earth, worship the Lord. That's the all caps word for the God of salvation here, reference to God the Father. Uh, Worship the Lord with reverence, rejoice with trembling, and do homage to the Son, His anointed, verse 2. His Son, verse 7. His Son, the Son of God, here in verse 12. That He not become angry. And you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. But how blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I read that last verse of Psalm 2, how blessed are those who take refuge in him or who trust in him, I always think of John 3.16. Now, here's more than you want to know about John 3.16. There's only one main statement in John 3.16. The independent clause is God, the Father, loved the world. What do you know about the world in the book of John, is it a good, happy place, or is it a dark, sinful place? I'm in the world, but I'm not... Yeah, it's a dark, sinful place. God loved the old, old sinful world full of sinners like Brad McCoy, with the result of that He gave His unique Son, the Son that's mentioned in Psalm 2, in Daniel 7, and in a minute we're going to look in Isaiah 53. That all those who believe in him, regardless of color, country, culture, denomination, generation, in the future won't perish like a fire. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, having been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, but have everlasting life. That's the gospel in a verse. Next time you're in a situation where somebody is begging you to share the gospel, it may never happen. But when you have a chance to share the gospel, Tim, all you need is John 3.16. God couldn't love you any more than he loved you. He couldn't give more for you than he's given for you. couldn't make it any clearer. Whosoever believeth in him shall not perish like a fire, uh, have everlasting life. But the crown jewel, in my opinion, of Old Testament prophecy about Jesus, which has been largely fulfilled now from our perspective as New Testament believers, go to Isaiah 53. Mark, Isaiah, Stephanie, Mark, Isaiah in your Bible, 53, and read it a lot. It's incredible. It reads like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but it's written in 700 B.C. And look what this says. When Jesus says, the Son of Man, Daniel 7, which reminds you of the second advent in glory, is first going to be a lamb, not a lion, they ought to default to Isaiah 53. But instead, they're freaking out because the party's going to end here pretty soon, they realize. But look at Isaiah 53. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we, generally speaking, the Jewish people, did not esteem him. In fact, the leaders said he was a satanically possessed false prophet. But surely our griefs he bore himself and our sorrows he carried. This is before the invention of crucifixion. The Egyptians invented crucifixion. The Romans perfected it. The Romans used it for rebels against Roman authority, which is what they said Jesus was. He would be pierced through for our transgressions. For Sherry Harrington's and for Ron Miller's. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being. You want everlasting life? Forgiveness of sins? Yeah. Falls on him and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. You ever heard anybody say that? Where does it come from in the Bible? Isaiah 53. Right? Each of us, even Janice Skinner. She's not here. It's not buttering up if I say nice things about her when she's not here. Oh, she is here. Huh. We have a seating chart. It's a sin to violate the seating chart. You know that. What are you doing over there? Hey, David, uh, don't sit over there next week. you have kind of totally change my world here. Uh, all of us, even Janice Skinner, who's not sitting in her assigned seat have turned to their own way. But the Lord, that's the, the God of salvation, has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Jesus. Jesus has paid our sins. He who knew no sin was made to be a sin offering for Wolfgang Dieg and for David Emerson, that we might become the righteousness of God through believing in him. Is that any good? That's the gospel. Uh, we got what the world needs whether they know it or not. So go ahead and, go ahead and get it out there. As for his generation, the vast majority of people, Jew and Gentile, who considered that he was being cut off from the land, killed to save the world. Now, most of them didn't get that. Most of them don't understand that now. But the Lord, God the Father, was pleased, not happy, but judicially satisfied. Just keep reading, and he'll tell you that before you look up the word in the Hebrew lexicon. To crush him, putting him, Christ, to grief, since he would render himself as a guilt offering for us, for Sharon Bearden. Uh, and then God the Father, the Lord, will see his son, his Messiah, after his death, which means he's going to be resurrected. That is, God the Father will prolong the days of the Messiah after his death. That's resurrection. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He's going to rule the world eventually at the second advent. But the bottom line is, as a result of the anguish of his soul, Jesus' life and death on the cross, God the Father will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge, the saving knowledge of Christ, active receptive trust, I'm a sinner, I can't fix it. Jesus, you can because you died and rose again for me and I accept you as my savior. By his knowledge, where does it say that? I lost my place. Yeah, by his knowledge, uh, by his knowledge, knowing the righteous one, my servant, the servant of the Lord Jesus, he will justify the many. Therefore, after he dies and is resurrected, God the Father is being quoted here as an oracle statement. I will allot him a portion with the great. In fact, he'll be the greatest. That's called understatement. And he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured himself out unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. Who was on either side of him when he died? Two really bad guys. They weren't thieves, they were terrorists, they were murderers, they were bad bad dudes. Uh, but he himself bore the sins of many and interceded. For the transgressors. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And again, you gotta put Matthew seventeen in its context. I would say that that statement of opposition that Jesus does miracles, yeah, of course. The witnesses couldn't deny the miracles, Betty, but what they did was say, Well, he's doing miracles in satanic power. Everything changes after that, and we're on this side of that equation now in Matthew seventeen. That's Matthew twelve. That's why he takes the guys out of town to say, reconfirm your faith. And now let's get serious about what we're going to do. I'm going to die, but I'll be resurrected. So he's all about preparing them to live lives of servanthood. But don't read ahead. But when you get home, read the first part of Matthew 18. After hearing this incredible uh, challenge, Ken, for them to be servant, humble servants. You know what they're arguing about on the road? Which one of them's the greatest? They don't get it. They're almost as bad as we are. That's possible. Significant setting, verse 22 and 23. You had no idea there was that much stuff in those two verses, did you? Look at verse 24. A controversial question with a negative agenda. When they came to Capernaum, which you guys who went to Israel know, that was Jesus' base of operation, fishing village in the northwest part of the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Those who collected the two drachma tax, it's called the temple tax, goes back to Exodus 30, Uh, came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? Doesn't Jesus pay the temple tax? Yeah, here we are. This is a schematic map of Israel. Jerusalem's down here. This is Galilee. That's the region. That's called Judea. You got cities in Judea, cities in Galilee. And we're right there on that fishing village. And we've been there. Like I got proof. A bunch of us, 46 of us were there. That looks like Ken Wanzer to me. That looks like Dale. There's Olga. Uh, that's Danny before his new knee. Right? Right? Uh, Stephanie, where are you? Anybody see Stephanie? Yeah, there she is. There's Jan. Uh, I think that's me. There's Ron. Mike, where are you? You gotta be next to Jan, right? Are you? Right, no, right there. Right there. There's Debbie. Debbie was in a train wreck recently. You know, that could have been so, so terrible. So I, I, am kind of making fun of that, but I don't, I don't mean, uh, to say anything that I'm just so thankful she's, and in, in, she's okay, but it's, it's, it's tough. But anyway, yeah, we've got the, we've got the, uh, public setting of this we need to talk about. Notice, uh, the temple tax collectors come up to Peter. Now here's what you don't know. The temple tax was one of those things that was an annual tax And there really weren't tax collectors for the temple tax. I mean, the Romans had tax collectors like Matthew. We talked about them last week. But the temple tax was understood to be an annual thing. And during the fall and spring, there would be a special offering box in all the synagogues. Now, in first century Israel, everybody went to the synagogue on Saturday, with essentially zero exceptions. So everybody's there every Saturday for the synagogue service, And it was just understood, there was no pressure, there were no tax collectors, you just kind of put your, uh, your temple tax, each male, age 20 to 50, was supposed to do the temple tax. It was kind of an honor system. So the fact they've got some official temple tax collectors in Jerusalem is a scam on its front. They're trying to, they're thinking maybe he forgot to fill out his tax forms right and we're going to catch him on kind of a technical process crime kind of thing. So that's a little bit weird on the face of it. But this public setting, was designed to put Jesus through Peter on the defensive, and give his Jesus enemies one more good reason to hate him because he was late on the temple tax, or maybe failed to, to do it last year, or he hadn't done it this year, and so he's not even willing to pay the temple tax, right? Kind of thing. Now, what's the fulfillment or what's the prediction Jesus just gave um, in verses twenty-two and twenty-three? He's going to be killed, right? And who's going to kill him? The people that these temple task guys work for are gonna instigate it and then the Romans will actually do it for them. And so you've got all this happening. So I don't believe this is an honest question. This is strictly trying to undermine Jesus' public support and to give the bad guys another reason to kill him. Now let me read from Michael Wilkins' very excellent commentary on Matthew from the NIV Life Application Bible. He says, uh, Instead of approaching Jesus himself, the task collectors approach Peter, the leader among the twelve. And then he says, Wilkins, or Wilkin, actually, Wilkins is his name, with a plural, with an S. The grammatical construction, the syntax of this question indicates that these temple tax agents are attempting to elicit an affirmative, a yes answer. You might translate it, Wilkin, to suggest he does pay the tax, doesn't he? And you might say, what's wrong about that? Well, Wilkins says, this was probably an attempt to embroil, that's a word I don't use very often, so you know I didn't write that, uh, embroil Jesus in a contemporary debate among the religious leaders about who should pay the tax. These representatives from the temple establishment, and again, you didn't typically do this. I mean, you just, everybody just was supposed to pay the tax. It wasn't that much money and just all males just did it as a matter of course. These representatives from Jerusalem, the temple establishment, may have been attempting, like 99.999% been, that's all, with duplicity. What does duplicity mean? Deceitfulness, to be two-faced, to pretend like we want to make sure Jesus doesn't forget the temple tax, right? But they're really trying to find, hopefully, that he's got reasons not to pay it. Now, he may, they're hoping he's going to do what the Essenes did. Now, the Essenes were the people that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. We've been to Qumran. There, They were so holy, they wouldn't even go to the temple establishment at all because it had spiritual cooties, and it probably did, actually. But a footnote here says, evidence for this debate about the temple taxes found at Qumran where the Essenes copied the Dead Sea Scrolls and were kind of... Uh, Clustered away from just regular interaction with the other Jews, where some of them contended that the temple tax had to be only paid once in a person's lifetime. So the Essenes were like tax resistors. Beware people tell you, well technically when the law was passed in 1919 for the personal income tax, you don't have to really pay it. You know what people who don't pay their income tax are called after a while? Inmates. You know. Now, well I don't like where some of my money's going. I don't like where a lot of my money's going, but I like to think all one hundred percent of my uh income tax goes to uh help support our military. That's just the way I like to think about it. Okay? I've no idea where it goes, and I know it goes to all kinds of crazy places. But the point is, this was a debated uh area and at least some of the more religious Jews that maybe these in inst- institutional types in Jerusalem thought, maybe Jesus kind of sided with the Qumran community on that. you only have to pay this once in a lifetime. Maybe we can catch him on a technicality here. I do not see this as an honest question trying to help him, but trying to hurt him. We'll say more about that in a minute. Put this in biblical context. I know Matthew is in the New Testament, is written on this side of the cross, but he's talking about events before the cross. Is Matthew 17 happening before the crucifixion? I mean, obviously, okay? So we're set in an Old Testament context where Exodus 30, all of the law applies. And what does Jesus do with the law? Well, he didn't come to abolish, but to what? To fulfill, right? He realized that all was about him, right? Think of the Old Testament as partial, preliminary, and pointing to the cross and to the life of Christ. It's kind of spirituality on training wheels. And folks in the Old Testament were saved just like we are, except, say, by grace, through faith, directed toward the promised Savior. how are we on this side saved? Grace through faith in the provided Savior in Genesis 15:6 Abraham believed God and his promises about the Messiah and that faith was reckoned as righteousness and then Jesus talking about Abraham in Genesis 15:6 but Jesus is talking, in uh, John 8 says Abraham rejoiced to see my day saw it and was glad when he believed in the promises of me the Messiah and what do he say to everybody now it's not about how good you are it's not something you do for God it's what God has done for you in Jesus Christ but to the one who does not work but who trusts in Christ who justifies the ungodly because he paid for his sins and rose again that's who you're going to look to for eternal life and forgiveness of sins that person's faith is reckoned as righteousness boom boom you gotta love this, man. Let's look at our Lord's firm response to this. And, uh, where well, they put the number verse division, I think is kind of unfortunate, but that came later and it doesn't really affect the text. Cause, uh, and I'm just gonna deal with it. So let's look at verse 25 through 27, and we'll just pick it up. Uh, He said yes. Now don't tell this to three-year-olds, because if you teach three-year-old kids in Sunday school or six-year-old kids, if you say, who said X, in Sunday school, you know what the answer always is? Jesus! Because they figure you're not going to get in trouble for saying that, and usually you're talking about him anyway. So if you rip this out of context, and you know Matthew's all about the ministry of Jesus, and you read in verse 25, he said yes, if you don't read the rest of it, you're going to think it's probably Jesus talking. But who's talking there? Peter. Peter's asked, "Does your, your master does pay the temple tax. I mean, we know the Essenes don't. Maybe he's in that category. We can, we can stick him with that. But... Peter says yes, and he's thinking, you know, I've never really noticed Jesus do it because like any good Jewish man, he did it He did it subtly, didn't make a big deal about it. There's that box there for six months. You just put it in one day on the way in or out of synagogue, and nobody even notices. It's almost as bad as this. We still have, hey, sleepers, if you've been wondering where the offering plates are, we don't have any. It's weird. We just got a box over there. And listen, I'm not a prophet. They haven't heard this joke. See, they haven't heard all the jokes. I'm not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet, which means Tanglewood Bible Fellowship. This church right here is a non-profit organization, so all you're giving is tax-deductible. So be generous when you give, but the box is over there. But yeah, they've got a box. They've got six months. Everybody just did it on the way in or out once and didn't make a big deal about it. So Peter's never really seen Jesus do it, but he assumed he did. And But watch this. It's almost like Jesus knows everything Peter had been doing outside. Of course he does. Because when Peter, Peter says yes, and then when Peter went into the house, now you know what you know what house in Capernaum was kind of the, the base of Jesus' operation? Peter's house. It's right across the street from the synagogue. We, we saw it uh, just a few months ago now. When Peter comes into the house, the house where they typically hang out, his house, Jesus spoke to him first about this. Okay? Peter didn't go, hey, the the guy's just asked me about the temple tax. You do pay it, right? I mean, I know the Essenes don't, but we do, right? Um, It did not happen. Jesus brings it up. Jesus says to Peter, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth, we're using an analogy here, collect customs or poll taxes? From their sons or just from the citizens, from strangers? Peter said, from strangers. I mean, you don't, uh, in the ancient world, I presumably... Uh, Donald Trump Jr. pays his taxes. I don't know, but I would assume. All right, and the other son and the daughter and son. So I, I presume they all pay taxes. But in the ancient world, the family of the king, royalty, didn't pay taxes. I don't think Prince Charles pays taxes. I didn't do any research on that, but you know he's kind of exempt. So Jesus is making a point. I want to make sure you understand. I am the son of God. Technically, the temple's all about me. I really shouldn't have to support it. It's all about me. I own it. It's my idea. But we're going to pay this thing anyway. So he says, from who did the kings of the earth pay, uh, collect their taxes? From their, their family or from just the citizens? And Peter said, from strangers, people that don't know, just the citizens. So Jesus said, here's the principle. So the sons are exempt. Now, who is Jesus? He's the son of man and the... He's the son of God. He Technically, he's exempt. If anybody could say, I don't pay it because it's really all about me anyway, and when I die and you guys are going to kill me, I'm going to fulfill the whole purpose of the temple. You won't even need a temple when I'm done with my work of death and resurrection. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't pull rank there. He doesn't insist on his rights. But he wants to make sure the disciples understand. Okay, He doesn't want to needlessly offend the bad guys but he wants it to be no doubt in the disciples' minds who he is, okay? So he says, so the sons are exempt. But, so technically, I'm exempt from paying the temple tax, just so you'll know. But so we do not offend them unnecessarily. We're not going to throw gas on the fire here just a few months before the crucifixion and and, and speed up their plans. So Peter, do this. And you're going to see something very unique in the Bible here, Dustin. Uh, go to the sea, which is the Sea of Galilee, which is really a lake, but it's a technical term, and throw in a hook... And take the first fish that comes up. And when you open his mouth, you'll find a shekel. Now, notice in verse 24, we're talking about the two drachma tax, But talking about historical accuracy of the Bible, although in the late first century B.C., there was a two drachma coin, the Romans stopped printing that coin. And it wasn't in circulation in Jesus' day. But there was... A, a shekel coin, or a stator it was also called, which was a triv- uh, 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 equivalent to four drachmas. So you got a two drachma tax. The fish has a, t- uh, has a coin worth four drachmas. just kind of like a dollar is equivalent to four quarters kind of thing. So this is one of those little details that somebody's making up, whether they might not have known. But yeah, go fishing with a hook. Take the first fish you catch, and that, it may have taken a while, right? You know, Bob Shawlett used to say, uh, "The fishing is always good. Sometimes the catching is a problem." But he, he enjoyed fishing, regardless of anything or not. Uh, and you're going to find a shekel in that fish's mouth, uh, which is worth two times the temple tax. Take that coin and, and give it to them for you and me. Make sure they know we paid our temple tax this year. Uh, I just love stuff like that. Is that is that insane? You know. Uh, Jesus is not opposed to the Old Testament law, including the temple tax. He's the object of the law, right? He's what it's all about. What does he say about the Old Testament law? Well, guess what? In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Don't think I'm coming to abolish the law of the prophets. I came to fulfill. And I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds that which you can crank out by trying to obey the law, you're not going to go to heaven. See, the law is not a ladder you can use to climb to God. It's a mirror that shows you, you desperately need a Savior, the Lamb of God. What does Paul say about the same issue? By the works of the law, nobody's going to be justified in God's sight because nobody keeps it perfectly, not even Billy Graham or the Pope. But through the law comes what? Not righteousness you need to go to heaven, but awareness that you need a Savior, right? But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been fully manifested, totally consistent with the Old Testament, including the temple sacrifices that anticipated this. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, what did he ever do? live a perfectly sinless life, die as our substitute to pay our entire sin debt and rise again from the dead to all who believe, who are justified as a gift by his grace to the redemption that is in his work, not ours. Now, I got a picture of the kind of fish that had the coin in it. Okay, now that's, that's what, what we had for lunch one day. But it was free. Somebody had negotiated with America-Israel this incredible deal where we didn't have to pay our tips. You're welcome. And because they paid them for us, and we got a free lunch. The bad news is you had to eat that. But, I mean, you know, uh, you had to put stuff in context, man. But don't miss this, okay? While making sure Peter and the disciples understood Jesus' deity and its implications, I am the Son of God. You know, the temple is my father's house, but technically, you know, as his son, I don't have to pay this thing, you know. But rather than insisting on his rights when that would be misunderstood and do more harm than good, rather than doing a frontal assault and trying to cram it down their throat, he's just subtle. A lot of true spirituality is subtle discipleship, servanthood, and nobody notices how great you are. But that 's okay, because somebody always knows everything you do for the right reasons, right? So making sure the guys understand his deity and his rights as deity and his right not to pay the temple tax. Jesus pays it anyway to avoid forcing his enemies to accelerate the planning of their or the timing of their plans to kill him okay he 's not going to throw gas on the fire. He's not going to uh, be flexible in his affirmation of who he is, but he's going to go out of his way to the right thing the right way. Back to Dr. Wilkins. I thought he did an especially good job this week. So let me tell you what he says. The temple was Jesus' Father's own house. So since Jesus is the Son of God, he is exempt from the temple tax. That's just basic rights theology. Then Wilkins says, this is a profound Christological statement, a statement about the person of Christ, indicating not only Jesus' relationship to the Father, uh, the ultimate king, but also the way in which Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. All, the temple's all about him, all the sacrifices about him. There will no longer be a need for a temple and sacrifices very soon, because his cross will be the final sacrifice, Hebrews 7. To make a striking impression on his disciples, however, that they would long remember, and that would be talked about 2,000 years ago in a little town called Duncan, Jesus instructs Peter to throw out a fishing line. This is the only place in the Bible people fish with a hook. They usually fish with what? Because they're talking about commercial fishing most of the time. Uh, this very inefficient. I mean, you can't catch enough with a hook to to, you know, Buy a baby pair of shoes. You can do it just to maybe feed one or two families, uh, you know, for a couple of meals or something like that. But it's the only place people fish with a hook uh, in the whole Bible. So Peter not only did it commercially; he actually liked to fish. It's kind of like some people like Ben like to play golf. Ken likes to play golf. I like to hit golf balls on a driving range, you know, because <laughs> you get like fifty chances to hit a good shot, and I need that many chances. Depending how many, sometimes I have to get two buckets to hit one good shot. Uh, so my batting average is not real good. On the other hand, you know, if you hit, like, half of your shots are good, that's 500. It'd be the Hall of Fame. But in baseball, you don't have to play your foul balls, do you? But in golf, you have to go find your foul ball and play it. That's the hard part about golf. But, you know, golf's a great game for Christians. I think I should have promoted golf more during my ministry here because you think about it. It keeps you very humble. It keeps you very prayerful. I mean, it's, I mean, you know, disaster is right around the corner. No matter how many good shots you've made, you may miss a two footer or hook one out of bounds or something. Um, the famous day I hooked two in a row out of bounds and we were on the last hole and I said, man, I'm running out of gas. And David says, you're running out of balls. <laughs> Cause I was teeing up my third shot and the first one's out of bounds. So I'm teeing like this shot there. Uh, and I was playing so good until then. That's kind of the problem. You got to play 18 holes. 17's not enough, right? But to make a striking impression that they'd never forget, he tells them to go out with a fishing hook, you know, catch a fish, and the first fish you're going to catch will have uh, this coin in it. Just just the exact amount to pay Peter's and Jesus's. Now, I always just assume that Jesus supernaturally created that coin in the fish's mouth just before uh, Peter caught it. But you read these commentaries, and a lot of these people are saying, Well, obviously this was an amazing act of providence, because you know, occasionally, occasionally like once every thousand years, you know, fish will, will swallow coins that have been dropped out of fishermen's pockets. And so obviously, Jesus knew that there'd be a fish with a coin in it somewhere, and he just providentially knew it'd all work out. You know, that sounds harder to me than Jesus just creating the coin in the fish's mouth. And I'm gonna I'm that's my position, and we can ask uh in heaven to find out about the mechanism. But for those of you animal rights activists that are so concerned, why would mean Jesus let this fish carry a coin in his mouth, which I'm sure was very uncomfortable for the fish. Um, I'm going to say he created that supernaturally in the fish's mouth a nanosecond before he bit the hook. So he had no pain until he hit the hook. And that's a whole different issue. But um, that's just me. You know, I had too long to think about this passage this week, obviously. All right. So what are we seeing in this passage? Well, we see an unforgettable visual aid about a fish with a coin in his mouth, and here comes the hard part, that teaches truth that's hard to swallow. Namely, the core of Christ-likeness is quiet. You're not bragging about how great you are or all you do. Uh, you don't even notice it because you're focusing on Him. Consistent. I mean, this is, you, you know, you're, you, you fall in love and you're in the honeymoon phase, courtship phase and honeymoon phase. And this of course never happened to me and Debbie, but for the rest of you slobs, you know, after about two days or two weeks or two months or a little longer, you realize, oh my gosh, she has a sin nature. You know, she's not perfect. Uh, she does things that kind of bug me, you know, that irritate me. Uh, and guess, guess what? If your wife does stuff that irritates you, multiply that by a factor of about three. You with her. At least that's what I've been told. And so uh, I'm quite sure that's true because Debbie never lies. But um, we're not very often. But, yeah, firm in the fundamentals, flexible in how you deal with people. So let's say it this way. We see an unforgettable VA, not the Veterans Administration, visual aid that teaches humility under God is the core of Christlikeness, quiet consistently. Uh, likeness is doing the right thing the right way being firm but flexible firm with propositions flexible with people uh, you got two kids they're exactly alike in every way in their personality right? they're not you know and uh, I think the, the most dangerous parents in the world are parents of only one kid who happened to be fairly compliant he's got a sin nature and it will show up but he's fairly compliant so you can convince yourself man we must be the world's greatest parents we don't have all these issues everybody else has and then, if you dare to have a second kid, guess what? It's, it's a whole different animal, man. It's crazy how all the same genetics get together and give a totally different package. Can you can you recognize that? Is that true? Are you two any different? Just like polar opposites, right? It's amazing how that happens. So, yeah, uh, Christians should not prior prioritize our rights over a commitment to do the right thing. If Jesus was all about his rights, he wouldn't have come here in the first place, kind of thing. So let me say this about that, and we'll close. Christ-like humility doesn't publicly promote how humble you are. In fact, it doesn't even notice how humble you are. It tries hard not to offend, harder not to take offense, when people don't meet our every expectation. And when appropriate, and this happens a lot more often than I would prefer, this involves freely, without complaint, doing the right thing over demanding our personal rights. And boy, we live in a culture that does, wants to sit around, get free everything, and then get upset when any of their rights or expectations aren't met perfectly. And that's not sustainable, you know. It's, you don't get that in uh, c- countries that actually function over more than a generation or two. Um, now, here's the thing. Just so you'll know, I didn't come up with this concept. I'm just trying to tell you how it, how it works, even though I fall uh, short of this very often but I would just say deep within our sarks, the, the Bible some of the translations call it sin nature, but it just means our tendency to be sinful, selfish, and stupid, and we've all got it, and God doesn't do a sarks ectomy on us when we trust Christ. My initial reaction to this idea about servanthood and humility is I don't like it. I didn't vote for it. I find it di- very difficult to do. But I gotta admit, that's kind of what the template of the life of Jesus is. Philippians two, not Philippians three, says this. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. That's hard not to do, and you're going to fail, and I do all the time, but that's the goal. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. In other words, kind of be like Jesus. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God... The eternal second person of the Holy Trinity did not regard kind of positional equality with God in heaven, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, not of his deity, but of the outward display of his deity in the independent use of his divine attributes. Emptied himself of all of that, taking the form, the outward form, the metamorphosis, the way it looked to the human eye, of just a person, just a humble uh, carpenter from Nazareth, being found in appearance human eyeballs, as a man, as just a man, he humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God the Father has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name. This is what he looked like, and this is big. If Jesus had always insisted on his rights, he would have never gone to the cross. So, you know, uh yeah, I'm all for our rights. And, our. you know, the First Amendment of the Constitution was tacked on so the states... The states didn't trust the Constitution. They had to tack on ten amendments to make sure the states understood whatever this meant. It wouldn't take these ten things away from us. And the very first thing it says in the Constitution is, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. you got an establishment clause, free exercise clause. And well, beware of people who want to define the First Amendment as... Uh, guaranteeing freedom of worship. The correct legal term, Bo, is freedom of religion. Freedom of religion means in the church and out of the church, you've got a perfect right to live out your faith. Freedom of worship is a new coin, a new term that is is a technical term. James knows what I mean, which means, well, what the First Amendment means, on Sundays when you go to your church, you can say anything you want to, but don't bring it out in a public square. Don't you dare bring it out of there because then you're going to hurt people's feelings and you're going to be a hateful, mean person. Yeah, if Jesus had always insisted on his rights, he would never have gone to the cross, much less pay the temple tax. Uh, but making a huge deal about that and drawing a line there, he said, let's just pay it. Technically, I'm exempt, but I want you guys to know I'm exempt. I'm going to do it anyway. I'm not going to insist on my rights every single time. And that's what a good marriage demands. That's what parenthood involves. You want to wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning, you know, for the first 18 months of the baby arrives. You don't want to. It's not your choice. But, of course, you do it, right? Now, here's the good thing. I either had such a bad memory or such a uh, good conscience. When we had little kids, I never heard them. I never heard them once. I, was, I, I used to be able to sleep deeply. So Debbie did a 100% of that. But uh, thank you, dear. I appreciate that. Um, I've been meaning this. Tell them thanks about that. But I will end with this. You know, well, marriage and parenthood, that's one thing very important. But more importantly, true biblical discipleship. I mean, Christ-likeness demands a lifestyle that gives up our rights at times, voluntarily without complaint, to do the right thing. And I th- think in my opinion, you know, this church has been around here since 1976. I got here in 88. One reason TBF, you know, has done well over the years, spiritually, in a healthy fashion, is the grace of God, period. But, you know, a function of that is we've always had a large percentage of us in the church, not necessarily always the pastor, but a large percentage of the group, a large percentage, larger probably than most, who understand this, who understand it's more important to do the right thing than always insist on my rights or what's best for me, what's best for we, is something I will seek over what's just best for me, kind of thing. And that's what drives good marriages and good families and great churches. And so that's been true through this point today, what is uh, August 25th, is that possible? But it's our turn for the preceding future, for the immediate future, it's our turn to do that. So let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this incredible, unbelievable, but true uh, visual aid of Jesus giving up his rights to do the right thing, and providing here for the temple tax for he and Peter. Uh, As we live out our Christian lives, help us to fix our eyes on Christ as Savior, as Lord, and as an example of servanthood that we might submit to him by willingly um, being humble, consistent servants, as spouses, as parents, and even as uh, function functioning parts of TBF. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.